The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. We are in John, the 12th chapter today. So here's our transition into the Word. John, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Let me tell you where we're going in the Gospel of John. We're going to get through 8, verse 8 today. Next week and the week that follows are spring break. So on those two weeks, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to just kind of pause Gospel of John, talk about prayer for the two weeks of spring break. March 26th, the third week, is our grand opening, okay? Grand opening in the new building. Excited about March 20th? Yes? Okay, good. We're not. That's fine. Um, So excited about the grand opening. Uh, And then the first week of April, we'll pick back up in the Gospel of John. So three weeks, kind of a break. We'll John today, three weeks off, and then pick back up in the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm excited about that as we enter into our Easter season. So we're in John 12 today, verses one through 8, verse 1, we actually read last week, but it gives us some context, a chronological marker for where we're at, so we'll read it again. Chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover. Passover takes place on Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is crucified on a Friday, so the Thursday night is when the Passover meal takes place. Six days before that puts us at Friday, the week before. So we are on, we are probably, most likely Friday, the week before, on that day, Jesus came to Bethany. Bethany is a city that is two miles from Jerusalem. So over the previous two months, Jesus has been literally in the sticks, hiding out because the heat was a little too much in Jerusalem. The religious leaders wanted to capture and kill him. So for the previous two months, Jesus has been in this little town called Ephraim, kind of hiding out, making sure his disciples are ready, but the time has come, the hour has come. He's now making his way back to Jerusalem. He's two miles away. He stops for the night in Bethany. Why? Because it's the Sabbath. Friday night at sundown, the Sabbath begins. It goes until sundown on Saturday. You can't really travel. You're not supposed to do any work, so he stops. He goes to the house, if you read the Gospel of Mark, of Simon the leper, But John wants us to know that this is where Lazarus lived. He's talking about Bethany, the town, not the house. He goes to the town of Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. If you remember, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that's what really ratcheted up the heat on him. That's what caused the religious leaders to want to capture and kill him for sure, because there were hundreds of people now, because they could see Lazarus, who they knew was once dead, now he's alive. They could see that, and they wanted to believe and follow Jesus. Now... Verse 2, in this home of this leper, there is going to be a dinner. Verse 2, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. This was not just a, hey, we're hungry, let's have some cheese and crackers. I think this was a planned out event, which makes me think it took place on Saturday night. Okay, you can't really prepare a meal once the sun goes down during the Sabbath. I don't think they had the foresight to get it on Friday, but they were thinking about it during the Sabbath when the Sabbath ended on Saturday when sun went down. I think they went out, made all the preparations, and they had this beautiful, beautiful meal. It was a wonderful, honoring thing where Martha, the sister of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, served, served the meal while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Jews in the first century had adopted the Roman culture of just kind of lounging at a meal. And I don't really know that that would work in my house. I don't really know that if I was just like, yo, babe, can you bring me some of that soup as I lounge here in the living room and watch? I don't know that that would work, but it was the Roman culture, and now the Jews had adopted it. So you have 
Lazarus, you have Jesus, you have Simon who was healed by Jesus lounging at this table. The rest of the disciples are there. Martha is preparing the meal a year and a half earlier. We remember a similar story where Martha's frantically preparing a meal for Jesus in the kitchen. Mary, Martha's sister, is sitting there with Jesus hanging out. Martha tells Jesus to tell Mary to get in the kitchen. Jesus tells Martha that Mary chose what is better. Martha obviously didn't learn. She is still preparing the meal, and Mary is still extravagantly worshiping Jesus. So now we're in the house of a former leper. Most people wouldn't enter there, but Jesus has radically transformed his life. He's radically transformed Lazarus' life, literally from death to life. And in this setting, probably on Saturday evening, Mary is going to do one of the most extravagantly beautiful things that is recorded in Scripture. And so that sets up where we're at. Let's read verses 3 through 8. At this point, the dinner's happening. People are lounging. It's in honor of Jesus. Mary took out a pint, it's a large amount, of pure nard. The type of nard that this was was called spike nard. Spike nard was made from a very rare flower. This flower can only be found at the highest elevations of the Himalayas. Now you're going, that can't be true. Like that, that sounds like a fairy tale. You climb to the highest mountain in the Himalayas and there grows this single flower from which you can extract this. It's true. Look it up. Look up spike nard. But realize that what it was known for was its aroma, its fragrance, and its immense value came from its rarity, came from how hard it was to produce. But Mary has a pint of this beautiful, beautiful perfume. John just says it was expensive. We learn from some other gospel writers that it would have cost a year's wages. Put that in perspective. This ain't cheap. A year's wages. She took this out and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house, obviously, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now we picture this and we're like, I, I can kind of see this being awesome, but I can also kind of see this being really weird. She, she pulls out a pint of very expensive perfume. She breaks it. She pours it on his feet and then she wipes his feet with her hair. And I, I, don't, I don't get it. What is she doing? Well, the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay, the four gospels, they, they give us a little bit better picture of, of what was happening. Mark says that she also poured the perfume on his head. Now that, that's important to know. So I think she either started at his feet and worked her way to his head or started more likely at his head and worked her way to, worked her way to his feet. And then once she got there, it was just so overwhelming. Like with her hair, she was rubbing it. I, I see this as beautiful. Matthew added that it happened while Jesus was reclining at the table. So I think it happened very quickly. I think she walked in, and before Jesus really even had a chance to sit up or stand up and go, okay, what's, what's happening here? I think she came in, I think, I think she broke the alabaster jar, and I think she just started pouring it on his body. I think it was, it was quick. It may have been thought out for her, but it happened very, very, very quickly. Verse 4, if you're thinking it was weird, what she did, everyone else in the room thought so as well. 
And in fact, they're going to get on to her for her waste of something so expensive and so valuable. Verse 4, one of his disciples, happened to be Judas Iscariot, that's, that's the traitor, the one who would betray him, objected. Now I want you to picture this. Everyone's having a great time at dinner. Sister of Martha, who's preparing the meal, walks in, fills the room immediately with this amazing fragrance. Everyone realizes how expensive the perfume was. She pours it all over Jesus, and Judas Iscariot says, Whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa! Woman, what are you doing? Now, I I want this moment to stay beautiful, but you see the logic that comes in here. He asks, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. In our day and age, it's thousands of dollars. We could have taken that, gone down to the pawn shop, got us a bunch of money and fed a ton of people, and I thought Jesus was about the poor. Jesus isn't about having nice perfume. He's about the poor. I hear this, and the logical part of me goes, that actually makes sense. Thousands of dollars worth of perfume, one kind of, kind of stings the nostrils a little bit. Like we could, have, we could have done something else with this. I love John and Jesus. Because John records what Jesus says, and then John even gives us a little bit more backstory. So let's, let's read on in verse 7. Leave her alone. Mark records that it wasn't just Judas that objected. Mark records that many of the disciples were disgusted by what Mary had done. Disgusted. If you translate that Greek word, it means they snorted like horses. In disgust at what Mary had just done. How how dare you be so wasteful, Jesus. Leave her alone. I think Jesus flipped his switch. Now, not to sin, because he didn't sin, but he got right tick away from sin. He flips his switch, and he says to the snorting horses in the room, you stop it. You stop your stupid snorting. And you leave her alone. You leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume. Okay, It was intended that she should save it For the day of my burial, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I think Jesus, I think that's how the story went, so I wanted you to hear it. They're snorting, they're they're angry. He rips them back off. I love that John adds right in the middle why Judas Iscariot in particular was so upset. Verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, (laughs) okay? He didn't care about the poor, but because he was a thief and he was the keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Remember, John writes decades later after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I love that he throws this in there. You want to know why Judas was so worried? He didn't have nothing to do with the poor. It was that he had the bank of Jesus on his hip. And that was thousands of dollars that could have been deposited in there for him to take his normal 15 or 20% off the top. 
It just shows the mentality. It shows the heart. There's a few disciples out there that just didn't like the waste. There's one who wanted to profit from the waste. But there's a woman named Mary who does something that was intended for Jesus' burial. I wonder if Mary knew that. Like she hears, she's, she's so glad that Jesus is coming to her rescue. You know, she's, she's getting ripped in the room. She's like, I thought this would be a good idea. And then Jesus comes to her rescue and she, she, she comes to her senses and she's happy. And then Jesus says, this was intended for my burial. And she goes, I, no, no, you're not, no. I, I didn't, I, I wasn't planning, I, I had this plan for like a day. I was, this is not for your burial, this is for tonight. I don't know that Mary really was intending on preparing Jesus' body for death and burial. I, I think Mary, even though she probably heard Jesus say a few times he was going to die, I think Mary was very hopeful that he was going to live, and now he's just a few miles from Jerusalem. And There's three reasons why you would anoint someone in the first century. Why you would do this, why you would break perfume and, and pour it on their bodies. Three reasons why you would do it. The first one is a very common reason. It's for a dinner party, the guest of honor. You would anoint them usually with oil, not perfume, but you would anoint their head with oil. It was medicinal. It was kind of a cleansing thing, but it was an honoring thing. The guest of honor party would be anointed with oil, and usually the host of the party would wash that person's feet. So it's possible, but not likely, that this is what Mary's doing. She's just simply going, hey, this is a party for you. I want to anoint the guest of honor, but I'm going to use it very expensive jar of perfume. It's, it's unlikely. But we know that it was customary because Jesus actually ripped someone in Luke chapter 7. He came into a party full of religious leaders and he was supposedly the guest of honor but it was really a trap for him. And after they sprung the trap, he goes, hey, I thought you guys like, were customarily nice to people. I thought, no one even offered to anoint my head with oil. So it was very customary. I don't think that's what Mary was doing. The second reason why you would anoint someone in the first century is that you were anointing them to be a king. Now, typically, this anointing took place by a priest upon the person who was ascending to the throne. It's usually done in the temple, but in 1 Samuel chapter 10, and 1 Samuel chapter 16, and 2 Kings chapter 9, you have three examples of a priest anointing a person to be king outside of the temple. It was in secret, because this king was going to usurp the power, the throne. So you have examples of this happening but it was never a woman, and it was never in the house of a leper. The third reason why you would anoint someone in the first century was for burial. Jewish burial customs had perfume being used upon the body, and for a very practical reason. It kept down on the smell. The smell of the decomposing body before you could get it in the tomb. The body would be wrapped and perfume would be spread upon the wrappings. You, you would anoint someone for their burial. Of those three things, this is just my opinion, I'm pretty convinced, though, that Mary was anointing him to be king. I'm pretty sure that her extravagant act of worship was to the man who she believed to be the Son of God and to whom she believed deserved the rightful throne and authority and rule. And so even though it was in a, the house of a leper and it was by a woman, I believe she was anointing her king. I believe that's what she was doing. I think that's incredibly beautiful. It's kind of motivating to me even, like, man, that's, that is extravagant. That you would take what is probably your most valued possession, and in a moment of complete surrender and worship, you would anoint this man the king.
whether you have the authority to do so or not. But Jesus is very quick to point out so that there would be no misunderstanding. What she did, she did to prepare him for burial. And whether she intended to do it or not, Jesus said, this is what's happening here. Six days before the Passover, this is what's happening here. She has done something beautiful because she has anointed me for my burial. Now, it's amazing. If you fast forward to Friday when Jesus is on the cross, Friday's another Sabbath beginning day. Jesus was on the cross for six hours, but it was towards the beginning of Sabbath, towards the sundown, when he was pulled from the cross. They had no time to prepare his body, so he was thrown into a borrowed tomb, and the stone was rolled over it with no preparation for his burial. And in fact, if you remember the gospel stories, it was Sunday morning, first time they could. First break of light after the Sabbath was over that the women had gathered and they gathered the spices and the linens and they gathered the perfume and they were going to do what? They were going to anoint Jesus' body. They were going to finish what they couldn't on Friday because of the Sabbath and they get there and he's gone. And Jesus, knowing that his body would not be prepared for burial, points out this extravagant act of worship and goes, actually, look, people, here's what's going on. I'm not going to be able to be anointed for my real burial, so what she's doing here is perfect and good and right because I will not ascend to a throne on this earth. I will ascend to a throne through a vicarious death on the cross, and my throne, church, is in heaven. I don't get there through this anointing. I get there through death on a cross and the resurrection that comes from that. Mark chapter 14, Mark tells the story a little bit more completely. I want you to read what he says in verses 6 through 9. Just flip on over, Mark chapter 14, 6 through 9. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. So all that's synonymous with what John has said up to this point. Here's what Mark adds. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I don't know of many places in scripture where Jesus' personal praise of people is recorded. And I think that's because man is recording Jesus' words and the praise of someone else may not have made it in. I'm, I'm sure that along the way, Jesus told people, good job. Church, this is a whole nother level. This, this is a whole nother level. Wherever the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, we have teams going to three different countries next week to do just that. Wherever it is proclaimed throughout the world, what she has done here on this night will be remembered. I know you're not supposed to read the Bible and just immediately make it about you, but I'm sitting here going, what in the world have I done? You, you ever felt really lame by comparison? And that's, that's the root of all unhappiness in our culture, so of course you have. <laughs> the reason you feel bad about yourself is because you compare yourself to someone else. Of course you've compared, but I compare myself to this, I'm just like, I stink. I, I've done nothing that warrants every person proclaiming the gospel to put me in the story. <laughs> but this gal did. 
Mary did. Because it was extravagant. Because it cost her everything. Mary's actions were absolutely an extreme act of love. She didn't do this to be noticed. She didn't do this to make much of herself. She did it because she just loved Jesus. So her actions were out of love. Her act, her single act, was a beautiful, beautiful act of worship. Amazing. For all of us, worship, our worship of God, should be our natural response. It should be our natural response. We should have to stop it from happening. It should be our natural response to the truth that God sent his son to die for us. Like So what fuels our worship is our love for God. What causes us to love God is the truth that he loved us enough first to send his son to die for us. And if and when those things collide, what is produced from our soul's natural response is a very beautiful thing. Now, I ask this simple question. Are you doing extravagant things in your worship of God? Have you ever done anything that would be labeled extravagant? Now, before you start thinking, man, this sounds an awful lot like moralism. Like, I thought just me being me and you in my life, that's what God desires. Like, I, I, am I going to get points for entering extravagant realm? Like, do I have to hit extravagant once to, to be awesome in God's eyes? No, hear me. God cannot love you any more than he already does, no matter what you do, good or bad. So this isn't about getting more love from God. This is about better expressing your love to God. Do you see the difference? This has nothing to do with God loving you more. Because he can't love you any more than he already does. This has to do with you appropriately loving God in light of how much he loves you. Have you ever done anything extravagant? As the band comes back out here, I want to tell you how you can. Very simple, one thing. Extravagant worship, what does it require? One thing. You've got to silence your flesh. Silence your flesh. How, if, if you believe that God loves you, that should be enough to fuel you to, towards extravagant worship. It should be your natural response. So what is stopping you from doing that? It's one thing. It is your flesh going that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give that much money to God. That is crazy talk. I'm not going to do that because if I did that at my office, people would look at me and think I was crazy. I'm not going to step into this arena and do this thing, even though I want to for, because of how much God loves me. I'm not going to do that because I'd look like a nut. People might snort at me like a horse. And it is your concern. It's your fear. It's my concern and my fear. Like, man, I'm with you. 
it's you that gets in the way of you worshiping God in an extravagant way. It's not anything else. It's not lack of opportunities. It's not, that's, none of those are true. It's just you. It's your own flesh and your own voice going, don't do that. Ugh. Today as we respond, our pastors and our prayer team are going to be up here, and, and what you do with this is just wrestle through getting rid of that voice, getting rid of that flesh that tells you no when your soul says yes. It's not so much about raising your hands in the next couple songs. Uh, our, our vocalizing of worship, our singing of worship is just one part of it. But I just want you to wrestle through the extravagance or lack thereof of your worship. And if you need prayer for anything, I, I want you to come and let our pastors and our prayer team pray with you for things that are good or things that are bad, for, for things you want to celebrate, for people you want to pray for. I know there's a lot of people in our church today who are praying for the Wyman family. You may not know who they are, but if you do, you know that their 20-month-old son, Daniel, didn't wake up from a nap. And they're crushed. And as a as a parent, I can kind of get why. I can't know for sure what they're feeling, but I can kind of get it. It's like today, I want to pray for them. That's, what, that's who I would want to be praying for during this time. As a church, if, if you know, I want you to pray for it, for them. But they're not the only people that are hurting. So prayer unlocks the power of God in, in people's lives. Also during this time, we have communion in the back of the room. Those are, those are set up stations for you to go and to remember the body and the blood of Jesus, which is God showing his extravagant love for you, which in turn then I think spurs our extravagant love for him. So yeah, I mean, communion's something you should do today. But God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that as we respond to you today, whether that's through prayer, whether that's through taking of the bread and the cup, whether that is through worship. I pray that we would look at our souls and we would ask you to silence the flesh, the part of us that says no, when our soul desires to say yes to you. Let us move in mighty ways, Jesus, to extravagantly show our love for you. Not because you demand it, not because it will gain us anything in your sight, but Lord, because you're worthy of it. You're worthy of all praise, and you're worthy of all honor. So come and move in our midst as we respond to you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand and respond to him today.